Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. guys episode 16 hashing it out i'm here with colin Couchet. say what's up colin what's up colin i am dr Corey petty and today we are interviewing freight uh we have three people on the mic today so five people could be interesting could be great could not be we'll see uh we have sloan the ceo uh barry the director of engineering and the lead engineer yev so why don't you guys start by introducing yourselves as to um how you got into the space and what freight is at a surface level. Well, we plan to dive deep, but give the audience an idea, an overall idea of like what the hell freight is doing. Yeah, I'll start it off. Sloan Brakeville here, CEO, uh, co-founder. We over at Freight Network are starting first with a protocol layer for logistics. We've recognized that with all the different applications being built on blockchains, specifically to help solve supply chain challenges, that for all of them to communicate together, there needs to be a fundamental base layer from which they can all benefit. And that is what the freight protocol is, providing a series of interfaces and APIs and and tools such that all these different application layers can work together in a cohesive way. Um, I got into blockchain back in 2012, was mining Bitcoins in college and discovered that Ethereum had a ton of potential with their smart contracting language. Uh, my economic studies led me to believe naively that it would be possible for us to have a programmatic way of doing a lot of the central bank responsibilities. And I wrote a bit of a thesis paper on what I guess you could think of as a stable token type model, whereby a McCallum rule would judge the ebbs and flows of the amount of tokens in the supply at any given point in time. Um, Got bitten pretty heavy, has been following blockchain for a long time. I've worked at IBM's Blockchain Labs for a couple of years doing POCs for finance companies like HSBC and Bank of America. Uh, my passion in the music and entertainment industry had me doing things for uh, a couple other uh, weird, interesting ways of bringing blockchain into entertainment business. And then I left in... October of last year to co-found Freight with uh, with John Fox, who's now on this call. Uh, Barry, you want to go ahead, man? Yeah, uh, Barry Glasgow. I joined Freight in January. Um, met Sloan three, four years ago. We worked together on a large project at a large bank in Chicago, and we've kept in touch ever since, and he talked me into joining this wild ride. Um, it's been quite an experience for me. It's a uh, Good to get on a new technology bandwagon. Uh, I've been on several of them. I've been in IT for about 30 years and I've pretty much ridden every wave. This one is definitely the most exciting and most challenging in a lot of ways. Um, so I'll turn it over to Yev there. Hey everyone, uh, my name is Yev. I joined Freight uh, back in January. 
uh, when we were starting, uh, you know, with the proof of concept and now, uh, you know, really building out the protocol heavy. My first uh, foray into blockchain uh, was also back in college uh, when I used to mine Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> and so I did that for a bit, uh, forgot about it. And uh, at the end of last year, um, you know, was intrigued by Ethereum and uh, all of its capabilities, uh, you know, especially as it relates to smart contracts. So uh, took a deep dive and, you know, try to learn and absorb as much as I could about it. All right. Let's uh, start off by going a bit broad here. Uh, Barry, you mentioned that you've, you've written, a lot, written a lot of the technology waves. Um, I'm curious, and you also said this one is kind of one of the more interesting ones that you've experienced uh, throughout your career. Also one of one that's more challenging. Can you kind of bring that a little, go a little deeper as to why? Um. It's the most exciting one because it has such broad implications. It goes across all spectrums, touches pretty much every people in every their daily life, from opening a refrigerator to um, buying a hamburger, or whatever. I mean, blockchain can change everything. Um, the biggest challenge is the decentralization idea to get pull it out of your head after working for thirty years in centralized systems. So every thought you give now has to be broken apart into de decentralized thoughts. That's probably the hardest part for me. Every time I look at solutions in blockchain, um, is to like retrain myself from the old ways yeah. and try to um, make sure that I do it the right way within the uh, decentralized areas. And the public aspects of public blockchains is a challenge in that all of the CRM and ERP and large systems I work in are all private databases where if you have permissions, who can see what? Whereas you have the blockchain where if you put it out there, Raleigh, everybody can see it. Um, and that's one of the challenges we have uh, at Freight also, or had, is how do we get these public companies to let us store their public data on a public blockchain? Yeah, so let's 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 uh, let's take this a little more focused on your specific use case. Um, I I think it's important for our audience to really recognize why you're doing what you're doing in supply chain specifically. Uh, meaning that we've touched on in previous previous uh, episodes of the podcast, there are a lot of startups trying to accomplish similar or uh, even tangentially similar um, goals that you guys are. Um, what about supply chain benefits from a decentralized model? And why do you see value in bringing some of these centralized exchange of assets um, to a more decentralized way of doing it? No, that's a, a big, broad question. And I think it would help for us to start by talking to the audience about what we believe the difference between supply chain and logistics is. Supply chain management in and of itself is this practice of everything from procurement to the manufacturing of goods to the delivery of the goods. And all those ancillary services, I mean, you wrap in customer service there, you wrap in different payment protocols is, is what makes up supply chain generally. Freight Network is focusing primarily on logistics in and of itself. And what we've defined as logistics is the actual movement of, of people and things from point A to point B. Um, typically, logistics is thought of at a, a larger pallet type level, whereby you know the parcels and the individual units that you think of as a consumer from retail goods is not necessarily what you're interacting with in logistics on a daily basis. You're thinking more in terms of we've got a large amount of goods that we're trying to move. We have to put them on pallets. They're heavy. They have to go on trucks, trains. They have to go oftentimes, actually most of them, over the ocean. 
Some of them fly directly on air, uh, like Apple and their iPhones primarily move over the air. Um, so when we look at the problem domain for the freight protocol, what we're building here at Freight Network, we think of logistics. And we think of building something that is a sort of base communication layer for all the different interfaces of logistics, whether that's your truck driver who's using a mobile app and has to inform somebody of their arrival, departure, and GPS location at any given point in time, or a container moving across the ocean that's regularly sending updates about temperature or humidity levels within that container itself. Um, all these different use cases sort of boiled down to a couple of universal goals that all of these different applications in logistics and supply chain are trying to solve. Uh, one, it's track and trace. So that's the biggest issue that we've seen that both customers demand of some of these logistics providers and these logistics providers are struggling to provide. Um, that customer service aspect that comes with this track and trace solution is, is a big deal. Um, and right now it's incredibly challenging for these application providers to have a universal solution for track and trace because they're all building in their silos. It's been going that way for a long time. Um, but, you know, if that kind of makes sense, we can dive a little bit deeper there. But let me pause and see if you have any follow-ups from uh, from sort of that discussion right there. So specifically, what about decentralization does uh, supply chain logistics then, if we want to focus on that, benefit from? Meaning that we've talked very talk very uh, briefly spoke about uh, public aspect of this um, public exchange. Um, what about uh, what about the actual network protocol itself and how data is stored? Do you think is extremely appealing to a supply chain uh, logistics tool that you guys are building? Hey, uh, Yev here. Uh, I think you know one of the biggest issues uh, in logistics, uh, and this really comes around to compliance is uh, proof and evidence that data has not been tampered with. And, you know, with the blockchain, you get uh, pretty much a complete history that's immutable. Uh, so, you know, for us, that was uh, one of the most attractive characteristics about it. And let me add to that. So when we think about decentralization, it's... You have actually made a good point about this a while back when we were designing our protocol of of what about the solutions that we're putting in place are needed by businesses. And as we go and we design and we architect, we have to ask ourselves of what of the features that this protocol is going to have need complete decentralization in order to achieve the goals that they have in mind. And we found that during our interviews of companies that are going to be building on the protocol, they don't really care necessarily how the solution is constructed. They're looking for a specific set of features. And it boils down to things like your track and trace or your payment improvements or your data being stored in a way that cannot be manipulated. And so under these constraints and under these business needs, we've architected certain things to be fully decentralized. The identity solution, for example, that we have that manages the roles and permissions to access the data we store on the protocol has a number of decentralized components because we recognize a single entity controlling access to this data is something that is not going to be accepted by a lot of these institutions. Absolutely. One other area that I, you didn't mention that has come up for me multiple, multiple, multiple times is resiliency, meaning that um, you cannot bring this network down and nobody technically owns the network. It's the, it, let's just say, even if it's a federated private chain, 
um, the there would have to be massive conspiracy in order to bring down the network. Um, this 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 level of resiliency is not seen in current supply chain uh, systems, meaning that uh, there are a lot of single points of failure in many companies and allowing the flow of assets through a supply chain, um, regardless of hurricane or cyber attack or earthquake or war are, is very appealing, um, especially with climate change on the horizon. So I think that'll, that, that as well uh, is one area that I've personally heard um, is very, very interesting. So you guys are developing a supply chain logistics protocol. Uh, can you uh, tell me about some of the other protocols you see maybe playing into this, meaning that logistics is kind of a broader uh, organizational level, like uh, sort of like how it's, it's not as tactical. Um, so how do, you, how do you see some of the tac- tactical protocols that also must be built to support this? For instance, per item um, uh, serialization. So you talk about pallet level logistics, but there is actually a use case for per item logistics, meaning that we can have uh, strawberries appear in shelves in the grocery store and they could be contaminated with, uh, I don't know, some sort of contaminant, contaminant, stereo, whatever. Um, we could actually find and isolate exactly how that, how that got to that shelf and do targeted recalls rather than grand scale recalls, uh, allowing for the return flow. Um, does your protocol sort of take that into account? Um, and is it agnostic to that kind of more tactical um, supply chain uh, necess- necessary protocol serialization system that, that will also need to be built? So in response to that, uh, we can actually operate on multiple levels of granularity. And it's, you know, a lot of this is uh, going to be built around the use cases, um, you know, that, that uh, users of this protocol will, will have, um, you know, it's designed, um, you know, using, you know, the typical, uh, you know, inheritance and, you know, object oriented or yeah, object oriented practices. Uh, so in regards to that, yes, uh, it, it has custom levels of granularity. Cool. So what have you guys got built already? And is this like looking to replace certain things like EDI or something like that? Yep. We'd like to replace EDI, but in the meantime, we have to live with it. Can you, uh, can you uh, explain what EDI is for those that don't know? Uh, electronic data interchange been around since about 1960, actually World War II. There's a standard format that companies communicate on to uh, transact business. Uh, if you take out all the healthcare parts, there's just like about 10 transactions. Purchase orders and invoices and statuses that flow back and forth. And uh, primarily EDI is essentially an FWTT file, a CSV file with a flat layout that, that people send back and forth and translate. It's been hacked along. A lot of companies have you know, used it for purposes, uh, nefarious purposes, not nefarious, but uh, they've changed the format so it's not easily um, easy for companies any longer to just openly communicate with it. You have to put a lot of work into it, a lot of setup costs, a lot of maintenance costs. Um, so blockchain essentially smart contracts should be able to do away with EDI at some point in time. Not sure if it's going to be five, 10 or 50 years, but at some point it should be able to replace it. And the way I understand what y'all are doing is basically, I mean, and with, with any smart design of any, project of scale, you start by planning and figuring out how you're going to build things, which inevitably leads to some type of standardization of like 
a very generally generally broad standardization of like how is the, what's the most general atomistic thing that we need to then build a system around and then move around in an object-oriented framework, which is basically what you've done so far. You created a protocol, which is basically just a standard that everyone can use and which you can then build upon. And can we talk, let's start by talking a little bit about what that standard is and how you built it. And then we'll talk a little bit about how you built on top of it. Sure. Um, so the standard itself is pretty straightforward. Um, at the very base layer, we have something called the transport document core. And you can think of that as the air traffic controller of the, of the protocol itself. Uh, within here, you're going to be storing your data. Within that as well, there's going to be access control mechanisms that really just highlight exactly what you're going to be able to do around that shipment. Um, directly wrapping that transport document core is our security layer through the ID and permissions modules that we have in place. Um, built on top of that, uh, and of course, everything flowing through that ID and permissions layer, we have a series of specifically designed modules that can be picked up at the, you know, you can take one of them or you can take all of them. They're designed specifically so that the, the customer who's building applications on top of it uh, can use only what they need. Um, we have a document interface. This is specifically for things like the association of a bill of lading to a shipment. We have the basic things like notification interfaces so that people can be aware of what's happening at the transport document core, uh, and then data query so that you can access information that you're allowed to hit. Um, we have a payment interface that is used to inform users and, and applications of their financial responsibilities based on what's happened in the transport document core and the data that's been associated to it. And then we have the uh, shipment-specific things, like your inspection interface, whereby the transition of ownership from a shipment from one party to another, like if it moves from truck to rail, the inspection data that's associated to that transition is going to be pushed through that interface. Uh, we have the transit data interface that's used for th time series information, like GPS or temperature along the, the movement of those goods. Um, and then that's pretty much the gist of it. Um, let me let Yev speak up to it because he did a lot of the design work for this as well. Yes. Yeah, so, so the uh, freight protocol itself, it was designed in a really modular way because um, I think a critical component for our adoption is, you know, we, we can't be shoving a new standard down, you know, down all these companies' throats. You know, it's happened so many times and you know, typically not well received. Uh, so what we do is we have these six standard interfaces uh, that essentially are the, you know, the, the core functionality, anything you'd want to do relating to a shipment. Uh, but on top of that, we're opening it up to third-party developers uh, to create their own services. Um, so, for example, you mentioned EDI earlier. Uh, we're going to have an EDI service that will sit on top of this protocol. So, uh, you know, as companies begin to adopt it, um, it's really going to be a uh, you know, they can hit the ground running and they don't have to, you know, redo all their IT and all their processes. This can kind of just sit adjacent to it, um, you know, as they slowly ramp up to using the protocol fully. So how do you see things like EDI interfaces working? Meaning that, uh, as Barry described it, uh, is also how I understand it uh, from what I've seen, uh, it's pretty much just document transfer. It's literally an SFTP. So are you going to be taking contracts and forming them in like maybe a recording contract uh, using something like Materium? Um, 
are you going to be doing something where you take the contracts that are smart contracts and uh, turning them into something that could be actually interfaced with the EDI, meaning in actual document? Right. We'll have a an EDI service that sits on top and um, you know that can handle incoming or outgoing messages, and it plugs into our interfaces and translates it. It's sort of like a translation layer between our protocol and uh, the EDI messages themselves. Uh, so, for example, um, you know, if some document like a bill of lading uh, or an order comes in, it would translate that uh, through our to our document interface. The other thing we do is is with the ED, one problem with EDI also is it's peer to peer, so there's no transparency across transactions between parties. So, what we're going to do is we're going to hook out those EDI transactions into our interface notifications. And make sure that everybody that's a part of a transaction gets a translation of that EDA message, not just the two people transmitting it back and forth. But that brings up uh, another point yeah. that's very important to this particular. Sorry, Corey. Yeah, I think you're going to uh, say the same thing I am. Go ahead. Privacy. Yeah. Cannot Nailed. disclose. <laughs> you cannot disclose what your what your pricing structure is. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And yeah. so that is that is a difficult problem and one of the barriers. So there's a lot of barriers to a system like you're proposing. Um. One of them is definitely privacy. Um, yeah. And I mean, I don't think this is not something that can't be overcome. Um, I just, uh, I'm kind of curious what your solution for managing privacy will, assuming you don't have it right now. And that is something that's kind of in R&D phase. I mean, am I wrong on that? Or is that something you actually have um, right now? We've got a lot of it. Yeah, our initial approach is um, all the sensitive business data, like you said, uh, pricing, um, anything uh, sensitive, will actually be stored off chain and a hash of it will be stored on chain to ensure uh, the data's integrity. Reasonable solution to start with. And so you have things like zero knowledge proofs, bulletproofs, things like that, uh, that you can right. actually yeah, put and, you know, on that's, chain. That's an area we're you know, uh, actively exploring and seeing, you know, well, what is the best application of that uh, within our protocol? Yeah, yeah, some homomorphic encrypted techniques would definitely assist in that. Meaning the uh, problem being there that you have to, you, you can't just store like homomorphic encryption is great and all, but fully homomorphic encryption is what's ideally necessary for this kind of thing. That's just way not happening right now. Um, but, uh, you know, you do additive or mul multiplicative homomorphic encryption. That's pretty light and straightforward, and that would actually work. Um, but, uh, okay, so you'd store off-chain, and you store a hash of the data that's off-chain, so they could kind of, like, notarize and sign the information that's being, uh, that's being flow flowed through the system, um, how does this assist with auditing? So let's just say you're going through a regulated, uh, you know, the FDA needs to get involved in this particular uh, supply chain, um, which, you know, you're a member of BIDA, uh, which means that, you know, these, the trucking, the blockchain in trucking alliance, uh, which means that these trucks are actually going to have to adhere to certain standards for certain types of freight. Um, the auditing, uh, aspect of all of this is kind of a necessary component. If you're storing this information off chain, how do you securely grant access to the information to say a, uh, an FDA auditor? So this uh, goes back to the ID and permissions layer of the freight protocol. Um, something that Sloan touched on earlier for each document, uh, in each shipment, uh, the permissions, um, are stored on chain. So, you know, who's the owner who has write access and who has read access uh, and it's identified uh, by their public key. Uh, so anytime a request, uh, a request comes in to read or write certain information, we check on the blockchain. Hey, is this uh, message that's been signed by this public key? Is it allowed 
uh, access uh, to this data. And then the owner of it, um, you know, whoever deploys this shipment has the ability to, uh, you know, add or modify uh, who, th who those parties are that have access to it. Very cool. So how do you aggregate this data? Uh, do you mean for reporting purposes? Absolutely, yeah. Because uh, you need to do quarter end reports and uh, you know hit and miss. What what did we what did we what did we meet our target goals for? What did we not meet our target goals for? When things are sort of off chain, um, then you have to have a way of accessing that off chain data um, and confirming it on chain that it's correct that you've received the correct data. Um, what tool suites are you providing in order to make that uh, facilitate those kind of necessary reports to uh, could to ensure that the supply chain industry is adhering to their own internal and external standards. Yeah, that's included in that protocol. Yeah, so we have a we have an interface just for that um, uh, purpose. So we call it the data query interface. And what we're developing right now is uh, sort of a custom query language. Uh, we're going to call it Freight QL because that's yeah, <laughs> the easiest name there. Um, but for that, it'll. Um, It'll facilitate the access, and again, everything will be going through the permissions layer to make sure that you know whatever you know whatever data is being accessed, um, it's authorized to do that. One of the biggest advantages of blockchain is that you have you know such easy and transparent audits. All right, uh, I want to know. I want to know. So you were recently on the Bitcoin podcast on that one's announcements with D, and he gave. I think that that episode gave a really good job at giving a surface level idea of. Um, what you're doing, how you're, and, the, and and the, I guess, market in which you're you're exploring. I want to know a little more details. In, in in that interview, you mentioned that you're agnostic to what blockchain you build on, and that's basically because you built a protocol first. The the kind of the overall standard of how this stuff works, and then the blockchain is the implementation aspect of doing that protocol. What are you using now? And and like kind of, can you give us some more details on the implementation of your protocol? Uh, yeah, so we we chose a blockchain agnostic approach because really it's a, it's about the features and functionality that the consensus layer provides that is of benefit to us, not necessarily which one provides it. Everything that we've designed so far has been Ethereum based, simply because that's where a lot of our knowledge is is uh, yeah we've we've done a lot of research on Ethereum based development, so we're comfortable with things like Solidity and building around that. However, the EVM compliant protocols out there are ones we're directly discussing, um, whether that's Hashgraph or GoChain or Aon, um, all these various different public blockchains that we can use our infrastructure for are certainly being entertained. Um, the blockchain agnostic decision was one I think that comes from all of us having an enterprise design and architecture in mind. We can't be tied down to one particular structure uh, because of the risk that is entailed with that. And frankly, the the consensus layer provides a couple of different key things that we're going to be benefiting from regardless, whether that's the, the data storage and integrity that comes with that peer-to-peer -peer, uh, replication of the ledger or payment exchange that can happen directly through that as well. So uh, we simply had a look at what the blockchain was providing to us at a protocol level and uh, designed with sort of any blockchain in mind uh, around that. So what made you choose uh, a blockchain uh, like Ethereum uh, over distributed ledger technology like Hyperledger? So 
having come from IBM, <laughs> Hyperledger Fabric was was obviously a big part of my. I'm with like you, Barry, but keep it to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, and to me, I just hadn't seen before I left enough production level applications and developer support for me to feel comfortable investing a lot of time and energy into fabric. Uh, not to mention the, 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 the whole fabric infrastructure and design is focused around private and permissioned blockchain business networks. And that's not really what we need it for. Um, we need blockchain specifically for, for data integrity and for the infrastructure necessary to achieve things like our, our privacy and permissions layer infrastructure. Um, so the, the Ethereum choice was, was deliberate in that we plan to have a public blockchain interface with our protocol. Uh, and Hyperledger Fabric just doesn't have a public blockchain set up specifically for the needs that we have. I'd imagine that a smart contracting platform above that blockchain is also necessary for the types of things you want to do. Like, for instance, like you couldn't build it on Bitcoin right now because there's not a good enough um, fleshed out smart contracting platform to do things with. And so if things like Ethereum work because you can do that arbitrary logic that then gives you those guarantees that you're using the blockchain for. So you that's also, I would imagine, a thing required to then build to then implement the protocol. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you nailed it there. Okay. So uh, my, my question is, you've got this concept of multi-chain, meaning that you don't really support one specific blockchain at the moment. Um, how did you implement uh, things in such a way that, say, Definity takes off or Cadena goes, goes, uh, goes mainstream or the, you know, the, an industry picks to design their own blockchain um, and you want to sort of still be able to interface that. Um, is there a, a mechanism where you could flow uh, assets between chains? And B, uh, how do you abstract your smart contracts away from specifically one EVM, for instance? For multi-chain, um, you know, the protocol, I essentially see it as, uh, you know, a lot of the plumbing and wires. And, you know, that could be plugged into anything. Uh, you know, there's certain functionality that we need from blockchain, uh, to, you know, certain storing certain data hashes. Um, and as long as, uh, you know, whatever blockchain we're trying to use has that capability, uh, it's really just plug and play functions. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if you're writing to, you know, Definity or, or reading from Definity versus writing to Ethereum or, you know, reading from Ethereum. You know, you just need to write all this header and getter functionality. Um, you know, there, there will, of course, be some smart contract rework, um, but essentially just, again, uh, modularity is kind of at the core of this very design. So it's, it's, it's um, you know, just a matter of swapping out the mod, like an Ethereum for a Definity module. Can you give us a sense for the scale of load it would put on the blockchain system you implement on? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so... Early evidence suggests that if we were to simply take EDI functionality and put that directly onto a blockchain, we would destroy yeah. any sort of public oh, infrastructure yeah. around that. Um, we had we had one trucking company send us what they uh, what they have to comply with in order to operate with Walmart, and this is ten thousand messages per second per load um, over the course of their contract, and it's it's just something that public blockchains in and of themselves can't handle yet. So um, we are designing specifically to have 
the blockchain infrastructure perform only those core things we described earlier uh, with the intent of keeping our eyes peeled for decentralized infrastructure that can handle the logistics industry. Um, we found you know, the, the public blockchain networks like Hashgraph that are designed with scalability in mind uh, are certainly of interest to us. Uh, however, the logistics industry being as giant as it is, you know, this is a $13 trillion uh, type annual market uh, is going to need some pretty serious infrastructure to handle a, a base protocol that's, that's universal. So uh, more of a business question here, but uh, you say, say you create the standard. Okay, first off, if you create the standard, that's kind of problematic in that now you've added a central point of failure in yourself. I mean, whoever controls the standard sort of controls the, the supply chain globally. Um, uh, people don't want that. Um, what kind of thought process have you given to how you can manage uh, the creation of a standard, but also defer um, the uh, the future growth of that standard and add edit to that standard without requiring a central authority such as yourself, because I almost guarantee nobody wants one person to control the world supply chain protocol. Yeah, no, I love this question. Um, so our version 1.0 of the protocol is certainly going to be built internally by Freight Network with, of course, the the companies and applications that are going to be using it in mind um, and adding as much feedback as we possibly can get directly from them. However, uh, I think if history has shown anything, one organization trying to define a protocol is not going to work because there's giant egos in shipping and supply chain. Um, I like to tell a story about how containerization took off in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, it took around 12 years to define the standard for what a shipping container consists of. Uh, the, the length debate in and of itself was a three-year process. And the companies who had built the first infrastructure around shipping containers were left in the dust when the, the protocol of 10, 20, 30, and 40-foot containers was adopted because they built 35-foot containers and 24-foot containers, the two companies that really helped drive adoption. So um, that's something that we're, we're very much aware of. And so we've established for the creation of a consortia that will govern the further iterations of the protocol beyond version 1.0. Um, that consortia is going to consist of a bunch of industry uh, participants and be something that is governed and uh, structured in such a way that is very democratic and not uh, commanded control, as a lot of the protocols we've seen being built by people like Maersk uh, typically are, are thought of in the industry. Who's going to be doing the development work? That's, that's something that we fund directly through the foundation that we build. Um, the, the freight foundation is going to establish for a, a fund directly for the continuation and development of the protocol. Um, there's going to be working groups that send out RFPs and those RFPs will be fun and, uh, to those RFPs will be managed by technical leaders at the protocol consortia level. Um, so it's a very much sort of decentralized governance structure here, uh, whereby there's voting that takes place to define what features need to get built first. And then the foundation will then subsequently fund based on decisions around that. 
our blockchains used for this governance structure? Yeah, this sounds like a DAO right here. Like, I mean, this is yeah. a good application of a decentralized autonomous organization. Absolutely. If, if so we're, we're pretty research heavy on how we can bring in a decentralized governance structure to manage all this. The last thing we want is a failing of the, the governance infrastructure that causes the protocol to cease to exist. Um, something that is universally recognized as beneficial shouldn't disappear simply because there's political issues around it. Um, and we're very much aware of that. Cool. So what um, what hardware do you see interfacing with your protocol? Because this is not purely a software solution. Um, we actually had Foam on the podcast this week. Foam is doing GPS-like systems uh, for location data um, with a, uh, basically a, a blockchain-based geospatial uh, and uh, time-based uh, uh, tracking of, uh, of uh, assets, I guess you could call them. Um, what is, what do, what do you see, uh, actually needing to interface with your protocol? And as the number of those elements increase, how do you see your sister being able to accommodate them? Um, can I talk about that? I mean, can we talk about, uh, the new partnership? Um, yeah, you can mention that Barry, uh, Barry's been doing a lot of our, our research around the IOT integration. So I'm gonna let him take this one. Yeah. So we've been talking with a company out here in the West coast called Rombi. And they have um, uh, all those systems in place. They've been in business for about seven years. So they're one of our first ones we're going to bring on to integrate into the IoT space. And so they actually were one of those kind of companies. They, they give you the equipment for free. And it all goes through an API. And then we're going to interface the freight protocol with their API and what goes on the blockchain for their customers. Yeah. And to that point, we have that modular interface structure specifically designed with uh, one interface for that transit data. So the initial hardware that we bring in are going to be communicating directly with our transport document core through that transit data interface. This is time series stuff that typically you're going to see coming from IoT devices in the future. Yeah. So this is just one company. We're set up so any company like them can join the protocol or use it. So it sounds like a majority of what you're doing is actually just notarizing pieces of data on a blockchain. And that's that's the real blockchain asset tracking pricing structure kind of system you you've got um what is what about your your protocol is innovative and what about it uh so i assume most of the innovation is actually going to be kind of off-chain because a lot of what you're saying is stuff that's done through many proof of concepts already but this is kind of like something that you're trying to replace a bigger system what about your protocol makes it you yeah, the um, so the protocol itself is, as you mentioned, something that is pretty widely known and widely discussed, tested, implemented through various POCs, and it solves universal challenges that the logistics industry has been facing for a while. And so, in, in that regard, the the problem set that we're looking to solve is is nothing that is directly unique. Um, but you know, that's that's not a failure by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's an indication of of guaranteed need and potential adoption in the future. So um, the innovative things we're doing is around the ultimate decentralization of some of these services. Uh, we recognize that this protocol layer at some point in time is going to have to end up not being a central point of failure. The freight network can't be responsible for the integrity of this down the line. And so a lot of the research that we're doing that we're finding to you know, hit the hit the goals of this you know, quote innovation 
that you're looking for is is around that. So um, I think early on we talked about the uh, the privacy protocols and how we're going to do data sharing in certain contexts. And while yes, this notary service is is an initial way to get adoption early, the ultimate goal for us is to have something that can be self-sustained. Um, and that is building out decentralized features and potentially we're, we're investigating our own blockchain and consensus layer that can help facilitate some of the growth and adoption of this stuff in the, in the future. Um, so bringing together all of the, all of the great research being done around things like ZK snarks, um, you know, bulletproofs and those privacy modules are, are certainly of interest to us. Uh, we're also staying abreast of, of various scalability and, and infrastructure plays. And keeping close eyes on, on companies like those I mentioned in GoChain and Hashgraph, uh, even Hyperledger Fabric and some of the things they have there. Uh, but we're designing with the current technology in mind and, and recognizing limitations that are in place uh, with the existing things that are built uh, while at the same time staying abreast of all the, the cool new innovations that are helping solve some of those business challenges that we see today. So how far along are you? What do you have right now? And when can we touch it? So, yeah, it's pretty early. Um, you know, we're a young company, and our, our, our path led us uh, to this protocol design after a couple of different iterations at almost like the application level. And so when we look at what we have today, it's basically just this architecture design and the first couple of customers that we're building out the initial features and interfaces for. We have an ongoing relationship with a blockchain company called OpenPort. They are building a couple of software modules specifically to provide electronic proof of delivery. And the benefits that they've seen from that are pretty outstanding. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, the trucking industry suffers from extremely high turnover. They're in very high demand, these truck drivers. And so they typically leave companies after maybe a year. Um, they get bonuses and there's a, there's a lot of, of challenges finding new drivers. And so driver retention is a big issue. Um, Open Port has solved for this by providing for a um, like a rewards program whereby they incentivize drivers to stay and keep coming back through two things. Um, one, they allow them to bring their own device or provide them with a device so that data around that shipment can be associated uh, directly to that shipment. Uh, this is data. This is data like your your GPS location. Um, this is data like your arrival and departure times, all being provided through the cell phone that the driver is interacting with. Um, on the flip side of that, because they're associating all this data, OpenPort can then offer them really good terms on the invoicing finance, the invoice financing of the deliveries that they provide. So what do you have that interfaces with them and why is that like, what is, what do you actually have at the moment and what, again, when can we see it? When can we touch it? Yep. So what we've built initially is the mobile app interface. Um, APIs are already established so that these mobile apps that are being built uh, can speak and communicate directly to our protocol. And that's actively running right now. We actually gave a demo of this a couple months ago at uh, BIDA's transparency 18 conference. Um, it was pretty well received, uh, interfacing directly with the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, we had built a, a driver app that allows you to store that pertinent data of arrival, departure, and GPS coordinates along the delivery. Um, 
it also established for immediate payment at the end too that uh, funneled freight tokens directly to the driver after they delivered the goods. As I as I listen to a lot of what you're what, what you've done and what you plan to do, and I try and visualize how it's all put together, I don't necessarily see it as a single blockchain platform, but almost a hierarchy of blockchains that then almost Oracle into a base layer. Uh, are you? designing things that way or are you planning to try and put everything into a single blockchain architecture like have you looked into plasma uh or yeah, uh, general yeah. state channels we're looking at everything and that's why we're keeping ourselves flexible we can go any way we want yeah we've we've started to do a fair amount of research on plasma um we have a sister company that we like to wax poetic with about all these new technical <laughs> advances called uh <laughs> called uh, mad network <laughs> Um, they're, they're building an ad tech privacy solution and already have, uh, partnerships with the biggest advertising, uh, platforms out there. So, um, certainly staying abreast there, uh, architecturally, uh, you can, uh, I'm not sure it's not necessarily a, a series of layers of blockchains, uh, but more a series of, of functionality, um, and how we interface with blockchains layer by layer is, is still being structured um i'm not sure if that's I'm not, really... I'm not, yeah, there's there's no good way to do this right there's like it's it's there, you have no example on how to do this because you kind of have to figure it out by yourself because no one's done it yet so i'm just kind of yeah. curious as to how you're viewing things yeah like barry what do you what are you what are you working on um like as far as that goes like what are you researching you, you say we're open to everything we're looking at everything what has you excited what kind of experiments are you guys running internally and um what are your results from them um, well, the current experiment I'm on right now is a uh, IoT solution that we're doing, you know, demo in about a month and a half with the, our new partners. And it's essentially, um, you know, running all this immutable IoT data and putting in blockchain, in, you know, what key aspects are going to go on the blockchain that are interest up, upstream. And then as part of the demo, if you get some, uh, get some visibility out there, we're going to partner with Salesforce and their new uh, IoT state machine. So we're going to have live shipments going through our blockchain that become immutable. Those key data points will go funnel up through um, a pipeline to Salesforce's IoT state machine, where then it can make business decisions based on those data points uh, within the Salesforce CRM platform. Yeah, so and I assume that, you're, you're you're agnostic to that stuff too. So it wouldn't matter if it's if it's Salesforce or some SAP solution. You'll still don't have, care. Yep. 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 Um, that's, that's always useful. I mean, because here's the deal. These, these enterprises are locked into their contracts sometimes for over a decade. Um, and there's solutions out there that already exist and they're not going to be getting rid of them, especially not when they have the big, big investment that they have already in the business part. Well, well, there's no so, doubt. And that's where we're looking at getting into these large bases. We have to be able to work with the large ERPs, CRMs and all that and build a push out. They're looking for the blockchain solutions. They're tied into decentralized, you know, paradigms especially Salesforce, they're struggling. They know that they're in danger. They read it on the wall. I talk to them. They know that blockchain is going to affect their business bottom line in the next five years. They want to be on top of it. So they're real open to how their systems can change and adapt from their centralized to uh, utilizing decentralized. Well, what you just said gives you a, gives you a nice way to add on to the, the, I guess, guarantees that they give in terms of like they're, you're feeding blockchain data into their systems, which gives them much, much better guarantees about the quality of that data. 
And yep, you can that's exactly of, what it is. Yeah, you can continue that that line. The blockchain gives you that, which then allows you to feed in a better resource to what already exists, which then gets your foot in the door to do better things later on down the line right. after you prove yourself. Yeah, yeah and, that's like I, I told them that's like you got this IoT thing, and you're going to be feeding IoT data. And how do you know this data is real? Uh-huh. Or if it hasn't been hacked. Yep. It has to be immutable or it's worthless. So, so what if what if it, the local area is hacked? Like, so here's here's one of the problems with IoT right now is that the you know, you can hack individual devices, but you can also hack groups of devices, or you could hack the device's entry point, meaning the actual we've, way they're connecting some, to the internet. Right, right. So, we've got some solutions for that we're working on, too. Yeah, so, like, local, building a localized consensus is non-trivial. That is that is a fun problem. Like, that is a real fun problem. <laughs> so, like, building localized consensus mechanisms that operate within a certain, like, group or even range of each other are just is just a tremendously valuable problem to solve. Um, just that alone. <laughs> It's fun too. It's really fun. So, uh, yeah, no, that's that's it's good. You're looking in that direction. I, 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 you know, I hope your research goes well. We need somebody to really, really focus on solving that in a very generic, protocol level kind of way. Um, have you looked into things like the IoT Alliance or your communication with, like, say, I, we had Zakamanian um, on the show as one of our earlier guests. Um, he's the what is he? Is he the director? Uh, he's he's pretty high up at the. Um, the IoT okay, so there's like, yeah, there's like 5,000 groups I belong to right now, and I'm not sure what's going on. <laughs> Interestingly <laughs> enough, he's also like uh, the developer on, on Cosmos. So He started Scoo Chain, which is a logistics blockchain, earlier, early, early on. Yep. yep. What's his um, name again? Zaki, Zaki Mannion. If you go through our history, you'll see it. Um, he's number one or two. Yeah, no, I don't think I think he's like five or something. I will right? look as you continue talking. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, uh, it's a uh, there's a lot of really interesting work to be done in that particular small niche area of the space. Solving that is a high value proposition. So I'm glad you're looking in that direction uh, personally. Um, the uh, the the question I I have for you is what is like so I guess what is making you most excited about this? What made you look at this and go, okay, I've been developing for umpteen million years but this is this is something that's just interesting to me like what what made you leave the centralized world where i'm sure you were very comfortable um up <laughs> into a decentralized world what 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 is what is exciting to you what's on the horizon what projects are you most enthusiastic about quick note zakimanian was number five so if you want to look back that's what it was i guess the answer is i like being uncomfortable um, i was comfortable um, the challenge is, is is big and real, and uh, it keeps me up at night reading, studying, researching. So it's very exciting. Fully understand that passion. Um, so, yeah. uh, <laughs> but uh, that's great. So, have you have you uh, when you say you're looking into things like plasma and general state channels, what what kind of things do you see your protocol leveraging them? Uh, how do I don't you see know. Them? I don't know yet. I mean, we're still in the early stages. A lot of those would be presumptuous to say one way or another. Those projects are in the early stages. Um, I, th- I think right now, if we nail down the IoT immutable aspects fairly quickly and get that done, then we can start looking at those. Those other groups should have matured more by then. We can take a better look at how we're going to move into those areas. Yeah, it's definitely an immediate value proposition in IoT, I think. I think there's a yeah. lot of... A lot of people who need that that sort of consensus layer on IoT. I, I see a huge need for it up there. Yeah. I have a question that's very different than the current topic of the conversation. Uh, why why a token? What's it useful for? Why do you need it? <laughs> um, uh, I'll tell you. 
Here, Barry, I'll take this one. Um, yeah. The token in and of itself is is how we pay for access to those interfaces. Um, we wanted to design a token that was independent of the politics of all the other tokens out there, one specifically focused on logistics and freight and what we were doing at the project. So we built this such that the the flow of tokens are for writing data and for consuming resources at the protocol level. Um, same kind of structure as, as Ethereum, whereby if you have a, a smart contract paying gas fees in order to access those computation resources is where you go forward. Um, but because our infrastructure has to be significantly cheaper than Ethereum for it to get adopted uh, in the supply chain logistics industry because it's so low margin, uh, we had to design something that could be potentially obfuscated from everything at the consensus layer. Uh, we're already seeing our blockchain, our token being used um, in like that partnership with OpenPort I mentioned before. Those those driver rewards uh, programs are being structured as we speak, such that tokens are used as a micro incentive for them to associate data through that uh, uh, through that smartphone platform. Yeah, and uh, to expand on that, uh, uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, we're really encouraging third-party developers to create services on top of our platform. You know, whether it's a, you know, like a SAP integration or you know some great data vis, vis, uh, vis I can't talk data visualizer, anything like that. And our protocol allows for the flow of tokens to those developers. You know, so they can set up their own fee structures, whether uh, you know, it's per write or a monthly subscription. Uh, and that way there's, you know, constant uh, incentive incentivization for, you know, for these developers to operate, um, you know, and to create new capabilities for this, uh, uh, for this protocol via the services layer. I see, I see um, if it's set up properly and the point of the token is purely utilitarian, the economics of the token movement become a metric in themselves of what's valuable in your network. I, I always think in terms of like analysis and like where you can find, like how you can look at the numbers that are moving and find value and then push efforts in that way. If the token flow works out the way you hope it does, it then becomes a way for you to automatically figure out what you should be focusing on or where the value is inside your network based on what people are using. Yeah, no, great observation. Having come from a sort of economics background, um, our one of our big pushes in the data science arm at Freight Network is around how the token is flowing in our economic system. Um, I think there's a lot of really, really cool research being done and insight into the economies that are being built on these blockchains is something that we're going to see as probably an entire field of research moving mm -hmm. forward. So um, it's going to be cool to see how the flow of tokens being written into a blockchain can be analyzed and interpreted in real ways that add actual business value. So I don't know if you heard some of the previous podcasts, but I have a tendency to, at the end of the podcast, go a little on, uh, go every, a little uh, every time into space and, uh, and uh, talk about something that's a little uh, outside of uh, outside of the scope of your project, but kind of, um, talks about how the future would look with uh, your particular platform or whatever somebody's actually speaking on. Um, and I have a really interesting thing that popped in my head during this conversation. There's not a real big differentiation between the material assets that you're talking about, uh, meaning that a pallet of 
strawberries or a palette of drugs or a palette of um, lampshades. I don't care. I love lamp. I did literally look in my room and see the first thing that I said and used it. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> so uh, there's really no no major difference between those material assets, digital assets, meaning like digital purchase keys, uh, documents, and um, copyrighted material, meaning that your system theoretically could apply to any data as a flow of good, a transfer mechanism, a protocol for sharing anything. Um, obviously the low hanging fruit in the current times is to solve the supply chain logistics logistics issue. But ultimately um, the, the, there, you're an information exchange network. Um, and that information is notarized and plugged into your network and can literally facilitate the trade of any information. And it's not restricted necessarily to material goods, which are tagged and put in a truck. It, it could actually be um, somebody's uh, PhD thesis or, uh, you know, a song on Spotify. And I think it's really interesting that as we see these initial use cases come up where we're flowing things through the network and notarizing them and saying this is what is true. As we have more ability to do that, we will see different kinds of things being put into these kinds of networks. So um, I think the word supply chain and the word logistics might actually expand as a result of the kind of work that you guys are doing. So very exciting stuff. Yeah, no, Colin, I think that's very well said. Let me add just real quick. I, I mentioned before uh, a sister company of ours, Mad Network, and the advertising technology supply chain has a lot of similarities to the digital supply chains you mentioned and the physical supply chains that we're going to be interacting with in our initial uh, builds of the freight protocol. But to be fair, supply chain is a general concept. And as all these different industries start looking at how their supply chains of, of both data and goods flow, I think they're going to start realizing that, generally speaking, these blockchain solutions can apply universally. I really enjoy wrapping up long conversations with very simple uh, sentences. And basically what you're doing is standardizing, watching shit move, and then agreeing on it. <laughs> yeah, Corey, are you, are you a poet, man? Cause you, <laughs> I am a doctor. <laughs> oh no, it's just, uh, I really appreciate, like, I like this, this kind of stuff and the, and, this type of work is is a problem that everyone has. If you're going to build a business, you're going to run into this in some way, shape, or form. And so, like as you start to build out the systems that help facilitate that, you got to help everybody do everything better because everybody wants to watch shit move and agree upon it. And you need standards on how to do that so that when you have, I don't want to say adversarial parties, but people who don't automatically trust each other, they have a platform they can go to to then use it in and not rely on someone else to make sure that everything's good. Is there, is there any questions that we should have asked you that we didn't get around to? It's something you wanted to kind of let out that we didn't get to. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges of any of these protocol designs are getting out there is adoption. Um, and a question that I don't think gets asked often enough is, you know, product market fit and how you're going to drive adoption of some of these ideas and protocols. And what we found is that, you know, even even in the, the last five minutes here, we've been talking about supply chain generally can apply to all these different industries. When we look at the decisions we made around starting with logistics, 
Um, it was focused on that because of the direct needs of data information sharing in this industry. And so as we market ourselves uh, in the, as a protocol layer for logistics, it's going to be important that we have a number of really strong and good ecosystem partners driving adoption at the application and service layer. And so we've certainly kept that in mind and structured how we develop and how we implement features based on real world needs. Um, and that's factored all the way down to the design of our architecture. So um, keep your eyes peeled for, for you know, protocols and, and ideas that aren't focused on adoption and real world business needs. And, uh, you know, stay abreast of, of things that are happening here as we move forward. Cool. Thanks, guys. This is really great. Really enjoyed this. How yeah, can people you. reach you and how can people find you? Yeah, you can find us on our website. That's www.fr8. That's the number eight network. Uh, we're, of course, all over Telegram. Come ask us questions. We're always there to answer them. Uh, all your social channels, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit. Uh, got our presence there. Uh, but yeah, thanks for your time, guys. This has been a lot of fun. Absolutely. And for our audience, if you like this episode, click the like button, show your friends, share it on Twitter, contact us at uh, hashingitout.stream. Uh, you can find all our sites there and a way to email us. Uh, find us on Twitter. I'm at Court Petty. Colin is at Colin Couchet. And uh, thanks for coming on, guys. Yeah, thank you. The pleasure was ours. Thank you.